The Bro Show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine, and athlete management with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel, and Bill Tate. Dr. Mac, how are we? Good, thanks, Bill. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm very well. Uh, here we are, season uh, three of the Bro Show, season two of Doc Doc Goose. Sadly, we are just Doc Goose again. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to get the other doc back for a couple, aren't we? Yeah, he'll come in for bits and pieces, I think, where he can. But uh, unfortunately, due to the lockdown in Melbourne, it's very hard for everybody uh, to manage you know, family and work and life and getting around and all that sort of stuff. Um, but hopefully we'll hear from our mate Rodney uh, in some upcoming episodes. Um, how are you going? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Um, yeah, I guess lockdown 6.0 is really sort of getting to us all. Um, I've missed the podcast. We've had a bit of a, a break, haven't we, since um, bit, about this time last year? Yeah, it's been year. about a year since we did the start of the last season. I think that's probably a good um, – it's a good benchmark to keep them about a year apart. We do a <laughs> bunch of uh, episodes every year. Yeah, well, I've been obviously listening to a lot of podcasts um, given the current restrictions, but pl- plenty of time to tune into some things that other people are doing and I think inspired by some of the content. So I thought, look, we've got a lot of – interest areas that we haven't gone to yet. So season three we've put together as a bit of a mismatch yeah. of um, a lot of different themes about sports science, sports medicine and athlete management. I wouldn't call it a mismatch. It's it's a perfect match. Is it so a mixed match? It's a mixed <laughs> match, exactly. So we've got uh, a little bit of endurance, wilderness, um, sport and medicine. Yeah, um, that would be cool. Which will be awesome. You're obviously – heavily involved in some of the female athlete work that the AIS is doing under Dr. Rachel Harris. So Yep. So we'll do hopefully a couple of episodes. Um, there'll be a big interest actually, as 50% of our athlete population are female athletes. Yep, that's right. And, you know, as we saw at the Olympics in Tokyo recently, so many of our female athletes are flying the flag at an international level. So something to be very proud of as Australians. Mm. And you're, you're going to lead up another one, interesting area of interest. Yeah, we're going to do a little bit of stuff around um, reviewing and debriefing and we're also going to talk to a few more um, truly high-performance athletes around their insights into elite performance and, and what it takes to, to succeed at the top level. So a mixed, be a mixed bag. A mixed bag. <laughs> um, but something, hopefully something really exciting. Now today, we're going to go into our first round of, um, of wilderness um, and endurance um, sports science and medicine, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah, which we've actually been thinking about for about six months, haven't we? We have. So um, we're going to do something a little different. We've got some content that we filmed at an event um, earlier this year when we were all um, open and ready to go. And it was a three-day, two-night event, effectively, what, about 100 kilometres? Yeah, the traditional race is 100 kilometres, and it's always an ish. There's always a couple of extra bonus ones in there. Well, we know about trail Ks. Everyone knows about that. (laughs) It's always about 20% longer than what they advertise. Yeah. Uh, This course was modified because um, Melbourne was in lockdown, so therefore there were no ability to get out and mark the course. So because of the reason for that, um, they did a a, a double loop of the same 50k loop or 53k loop. So um, yeah, it it put some extra challenges in for some of the athletes. Um, But yeah, we... 
We have done quite a bit of event coverage um, with Endurance Medical Services, which they mainly cover trail running and ultra running events out in fairly remote places. And and the specialist qualifications of the uh, the specialist interest of this company is that they can actually um, have a good coverage of events, um, assess people on trail and um, make plans to evacuate. So um, given the rise and rise of endurance athletes heading out to more and more remote places and and even people that haven't traditionally done athletic sports before taking up new hobbies and deciding running trail running is absolutely the best way to go and we heavily support that because these events are amazing we've just really noticed the change in the first aid space um, in that you really need to be able to firstly manage yourself if you go out into a really wild place to do a trail run event so that is our athlete management part of our conversations. Secondly, you need to understand what kind of stresses you're going to put your body under in terms of physiology. Okay, so it's going to be a series of three looks at um, endurance um wilderness events. The first one we're going to go through today is a bit of a live snapshot of what we felt while we were going through a pretty major event um, at the time, a three-day event, as we said. The second one, we're going to bring in an expert around nutrition to support endurance training you know, in the wilderness specifically, but more broadly, um, endurance, uh, nutrition, and physiology. And the third one, we're going to catch up with Deb Sharp, who is the person who leads endurance medical services. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the preparation that athletes and people who are going to support athletes need to consider when they're looking at going into, you know, more extreme environments for endurance events. Sound good? Yeah, it's going to be awesome. All right, we'll get started on the first one. And as we go through it, we'll pause and and catch up on our reflections, uh, you know, a few months later on what we're on. Okay. Doc, daily wrap. Daily wrap. Friday of hut to hut. I don't know the date. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the 18th. Um, So sitting in the Hatful River, it's not too bad at all, actually. PFG, (laughs) as they say. So, just quickly for today, the runners did the the sort of archy course in reverse, the non-traditional way, so which is clockwise. A little bit of a difference for those that are familiar. Yes, indeed. Tell us, tell us a bit about the course profile for the day and what, what impact that might have had. So starting at Mount Buller, so a fairly um, familiar kind of run down to Hauqua Gap. And then from Hauqua, that was the first aid station. And I think some people might not have gone right into the hut to get signed off. So we had a little bit of logistics working out who actually came through Halkwa Gap um, but then they've all pooned down Cornhill logging track and that's a fairly steep descent off Halkwa. Now we just we just ran yeah, up half of it and just had to go up there. It's actually quite steep. Yeah. Um, but pretty exciting and that's not a tiger snake, it's a fish. Been keeping our eye out. Yes, the trout are jumping. Yeah. So, um, so down pretty steep. Very steep down, um, and they would have got to pikes. I think we saw the first runners at 7.05, so, so two, two hours, hours in, after the start. About 20 k's in? Yeah, probably around about that. Um, but they would have come off quite a steep descent, so there were a couple of sprained ankles that we had, um, and a few people that had their toes all taped up before they started were already playing up because they kicked a lot of rocks 
on the way down that descent. Um, so from 7am we sort of had a steady stream of the elite runners. A lot of them didn't stop for very long at our stop. Um, and then they've headed up the hill up the start of 16 mile jeep track. Um, and then they've turned along one of the Haukwa, I think it's called High Track, that goes along the Haukwa River um, to 8 mile and then over to 4 mile. And then the last part of today is usually the first part of Hut to Hut, which is a very steep descent. They have to go up 4 mile spur, so a 1,000 metre climb, which hearing over the radio this afternoon may have broken a few people, but full credit to those who hit it in the heat of the day and got it done. <laughs> Rightio, so... Sitting there cruising, chatting through. So it's, uh, you know, an early afternoon finish for us. Um, and then we actually went for a little run, which was nice, up the hill. Mm. And um, we're sort of catching up on, you know, effectively a fairly quiet day. So the first part of that is we're talking about the logistics of people coming into Hauqua hut and not checking in. So um, it causes a little bit of grief, I think, straight away. And it's a good lesson for competitors. I think they'll probably... I don't know, about 16 k's in when they get to Haukwa from Bula along along the top. It's a little bit of a steady descent. So they, they should be pretty fresh at that point, but they've kind of skipped that checkpoint. And therefore, there's a bunch of people who we actually don't know what part of the course they're in because they've kind of just you know not paid attention to that section. Yeah. I mean, taking half a step back, so... so this is an event that you and I set up a satellite aid station. So we were set up on a base that was a two-hour forward drive from the main um, uh, start-finish area where MedBase was. So so our endurance medical services has MedBase and then we have some satellite aid stations and our site was called Pikes Flat. So a two-hour forward drive trip from Mount Buller, um, which actually, as the crow flies, is not that far. But access-wise to get a car in and out can mean that you do need to plan your um, movements of people in and out. But, I mean, I really love these events because what we do make sure is we've always got quite good communication. So we had a UHF radio. We, were, we had no reception. We had no Wi-Fi. We had nothing where we were down on the, the lower level. So we relied on UHF. We had a car radio and we had a lot of handhelds. And there were some radio towers, some some um, relay points weren't there to get back up to med base. Yep. So we uh, part of the logistics of it as an event organiser is that you need to – well, firstly, understand that your medical team um, has management over the whole course and they can access athletes over the whole course and that they can, they can know where they are. And, but the, probably the most important thing is that you have a system whereby athletes can be tracked by number and some people have GPS trackers on athletes in certain events that are you know, really well resourced. But otherwise, the, the numbering system has to be pretty sound, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think it, there's often – yeah, there's a set of numbers from one to a hundred that are blue, and they're they're doing the half, and green are doing the full event, and it gets very confusing when people are running in and out. But it does get quite sketchy when you you're trying to find two or three numbers that haven't checked in at one checkpoint, and that checkpoint would have expected those people well and truly through, and you're not not sure they could be anywhere between there and the next one, and the next one where we were might be for some athletes. 40 minutes away, and for some three hours away. So the risk being that the track is marked but not everyone yeah. sticks to the track when they're fatigued. And this is the Australian bush, not, um, you know, it's about as remote as, as most people could get, most people could reasonably get. You know, it may only be sort of um, 10 or 15 kilometres as the crow flies from Mount Buller Ski Village, but it's a two-hour drive mm. in a four-wheel drive if you're lucky. Yeah, so it's remote. scrub's thick. You can't see 
um, much further than where you are unless you, you went uphill to, to get some mobile reception. But that's that's going off the marked trail. So we, we rely on people to either stick to the track or be near someone who is, is on the track. So making sure you check in and ma- making sure it's your responsibility, that's a really big thing. So it was the first day. They're fresh. It's pretty much all downhill to us realistically yeah. and, and a decent whack downhill. It's like 1,200 metres of elevation drop. Mm. Not not too brutal for the first half down to Halqua, but then from Halqua down to Pikes, we go down, I think it's Cornhill track, and that is steep in sections, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and, and the normal course would have had them go up that hill. So they're, they're going down a closed four-wheel drive track. So there's overhanging routes and there's um, clay sort of slippery, slidey bits on there and, and, and rocks. Mainly and it's like it more was than 30 just- degrees in, for fairly extended sections. Yeah, it's not a long stretch and to be honest, we were kind of expecting that they'll be feeling pretty good by the time they get to us. And by and large they were, but we did see the usual couple of sore feet and some some ankle things and that was about it really, wasn't it, at that point? Yeah, but we had a close look at everyone, didn't we? Because what you're doing is then sending them from Pikes, which is the last road access point. Mm. Then for the rest of their day out, there's probably not a lot of opportunity to get them out. So people need to be looking pretty reasonable when they go past us. Yeah, they do. And we'll talk a bit more about that in the next section. So we've caught the runners off the back of a couple of hours between two and sort of five hours worth of essentially descending most of it. Mm. Um, It was a quiet day for us in a sense because... Number one, they hadn't had any river crossings because there's 14 river crossings in this course. Um, but they'd also, they, you know, it's relatively early into the piece. So what, what did we see today? We didn't see much, but what did we see? Uh, we had a few ankle injuries and and a foot injury, actually. So probably some ligaments on a, on a few and I think a bone stress on another one. Um, a couple who had to withdraw because of lower limb injuries coming down a big descent. Um, we had, at our station, we had a few sort of feet things, like I said. Um, we had someone who hurt his shoulder. Uh, I think <laughs> carrying a pack means that you have your shoulders in an interesting position and then aid station, you take everything off. And I think starting cold, being very still for a while, I think he's tweaked a nerve in his neck is what my guess is. That would have shaken itself out on the run, I hope. Um, that didn't hold him back for very long. Anyway, won't give too much confidentiality away. But um, very quiet day for us. We're expecting a big day tomorrow. Yeah. But there were a few that we caught up with that needed a little bit of uh, pain maintenance and there's some impacts on that later on. Because, again, although... We saw them at 20Ks and it's only a 50K day. All of these runners have to do the same thing again, but in the other direction tomorrow. Yeah, that's crucial. You assess someone based on not the fact that that's what they look like right now, but, you know, you're actually sending them off to do another sort of 35Ks today, including a big climb, and then they've got to repeat that tomorrow in reverse. Exactly. So um, our communication back to Medbase was always based on, we saw this person... They were okay now, but let's follow them along because we can see that at some point we may have to, you know, intervene or um, just for safety, keeping an eye on them. Um, and then, yeah, so they'll all have a, a night tonight where they try and recuperate and get back to doing it tomorrow. Yeah. So we'll catch up with tomorrow in a moment. But the first part there was uh, ligaments and a little bit of bone stress. So, I mean, obviously ligaments 
you know, you're thinking about rolled ankles. Was that was that the main sort of, uh, I guess, mechanism for foot injuries that we saw um, on those descents? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think trail runners understand that the, the track that you have to tread is very unstable. Um, often you're slipping off rocks or you're jumping down off off ledges kind of to the next level down. It's very easy to, you know, um, roll laterally out on the ankle and sprain some of the lateral ligaments. Um, I always think about ankles as being they're a small injury because they're very distal. It's not like it's a systemic, you know, heat affected illness or exhaustion. But the ankle injury in the wrong place can be really dangerous, particularly if, you know, it's close to dark and you can't get out quickly. If it slows you down to the point that um, it becomes unsafe, then then it, they can be a big deal. So lateral ankle injuries can be acute or they can be chronic. So we do actually see on these runs quite a lot of people who come already with their ankles strapped, like they've got a chronic yeah. dodgy syndesmosis or something like that that doesn't like the unstable trail. And they'll check in on one of the earlier aid stations just to, to say, I'm not feeling great. Can you just um, reinforce my tape kind of thing? So often we're discussing with people about how, how they feel their ankle is going to hold up for the rest of the day. On your other point, bone stress injuries, um, I'd say that they're rare being acute at these events. Usually um, there are pre-existing weaknesses of people coming in that they've done a bigger training load leading up to these events. Yeah. So quite often they, they might have stepped up their kilometres leading up to their big goal event for the year and they've got a little niggle in their foot and they think, I'll just get through, I'll just get through. And, um, yeah, often we see them at the tent because it's getting pretty painful. And I would say, you know, one of the big things for – it sounds obvious, but if you want to go and run um, some of these amazing trail uh, events in the wilderness, it's, you know, obviously they're spectacular, particularly in the Victorian high country. Um, but if you were, you know, a solid park runner or better – in the tracks of Melbourne, the one big difference is just the skills of running down some of those hills. Like you've actually got to dedicate some time to learn, you know, how to balance your weight on your heels rather than just slamming down on your on your um, the arch of your foot all the time. You see those really good runners; they they know how to um, continue to move quickly down I the hills. I don't think the good runners touch the ground. I think they kind of yeah, they kind of absolutely do fly. scoot down. But um, you're exactly right. You need to choose some trails that are going to replicate the kind of terrain you're going to see out in the high plains and that's going to be a lot of ascending, a lot of descending, technical work, rocky work, um, just so that your ankles can really tune into the instability. And we'll hear a bit more about it on day two, but I think it's the descending that is what gets people, if they're, if they're not mentally prepared for that, if they haven't gone through their strategies of how to manage that really well, that seems to be the surprising thing for people. I would agree. <laughs> so the the odd one there was the shoulder uh Injury, and I remember this. It was it was a, a he was a really fit fit yeah. um, athlete, um, but he, he effectively just taking his pack off, and it just it just twinged in an awkward spot. But I think it talks to number one, you know, your act, your body's at the extreme point, so really weird things can go wrong. And number two, you know, people just trying to quickly do something to move on. Now it happened at an aid station where we could give him a little bit of TLC, and it was actually fine. But that could easily happen, you know, between age stations when you're like an hour and a half from the next sort of set of help. And, it, you know, something like that could be enough to kind of put you in a really desperate situation. Yeah. Oh, I think that that was an unusual one. But we do see unusual things at every single race, don't we? Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think understanding your own body and understanding your tight points that you, you might experience on the race. Um, and take uh, some time. Like don't, don't rush through like, you know, you save – 
half a second or three seconds getting that pack off, you know, if you're trying to get some food halfway down the trail, whereas just take a moment, you know, do it carefully, make sure you don't leave, you know, that important piece of something behind when you're stuffing it back in there. Like it's so easy when you're under pressure and you're competitive and you want to go, but that's where mistakes happen, isn't it? Yeah, we see this commonly um, and – I think if if you're in the middle of a race, it's it's easy to neglect this, but absolutely in a trail race, partly you you're actually looking after your own survival, so yep. it is an adventure, and and you're um, staying you know healthy and in, intact is is one of the main challenges of the day. Yeah, and I, the third part there that I picked up on was again just a reminder around the importance of communication forward. So you mentioned before about the radio net that we were managing and, and quite a bit of effort just letting the aid stations ahead and med base know, oh, you know, runner 86 um, stopped was fine. We, you know, we, we examined that person and they were fine to continue. They took, um, you know, their yeah, own Panadol well, Sometimes we'll, yeah, make sure that they administer some of their own pain medication that's safe to do so at that point in the race. And that's really important that then the next aid station is aware that this person had this much paracetamol at this point so that, you know, an hour later they're not having another dose and then by the end of the day we're in trouble in terms of too much. So we do actually have to make sure that we keep a log of medications, um, which obviously we try to minimise when we're out there, but sometimes they are necessary and that that's communicated forward. And and it's something that I'm always impressed with um, the uh, the medics in the team is – just how much attention to that detail they take. Like they're, they're constantly looking for 86 and just checking in and checking with one another. Did we see that that person come through? And 86 is fictional in this instance, although I'm sure there was an 86 <laughs> out there. Um, it, it, it is actually something that gets paid a lot of attention to because it's important, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think like as a doctor, you kind of – that's the flag. Not that they've had their medication, but they needed something. So maybe their situation will change by the next test, um, checkpoint. So you kind of have a, a person flagged that you're thinking, we'll keep an eye on this one. Yeah, cool. All right, we'll return to you in the river, in the Hauka River, for the final part of the first day. All right. Yeah. So tomorrow, same course, traditional direction. So the, the Oscars, so the 100K race is doing the anti-clockwise of what they did today. So that's all the runners we had today, which was roughly 160-ish. 160-ish, yeah. yep. Plus, then we have the full Archie event, which all is... the Archie, which is the shorter race. It's the one-day race, um, 53 kilometres, I think it is this year. Yeah. So they'll all descend four mile off the summit of Mount Buller to start with tomorrow which usually leaves people pretty, pretty sore in the knees and the quads. It's a very steep descent and there usually are a couple of stacks on the way down. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see them at the 30-ish K mark and people won't be looking crash hot at that point and they've got a big climb to do after that. So I think we'll be a bit busier. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to see them fatigued off the back of a day's rest but with probably doms and that sort of thing yeah. in their legs and... Um, and some of those mechanical things that come with that. But we'll also see them after 27 river crossings in in two days. So, again, feet might be a bit of a thing tomorrow in terms of blisters. Yeah, a couple of people will probably stop with feet. Um, And also uh, there were a couple of people that got pulled out this afternoon due to sort of heat exhaustion type illness. Um, 
one or two that we're allowed to keep going so you know they may recover and have a good day tomorrow or tomorrow might be pretty tough for them as well so we'll keep an eye on those numbers as well. And um, we are sitting in the river to cool our heels but we're also here to do a job for tomorrow aren't we? We've got to collect some rocks. Oh yeah, <laughs> river rocks. What do we use the river rocks for again? Uh, we hand them out as souvenirs on the way through. No, we don't. Therefore, um, if you get really tight uh, TFL muscles on the way down, you can roll, roll on them at the aid station, just stretching a little bit out and making sure the niggles are all gone to get up the next climb. It's a very COVID safe way. We're not sharing spiky balls No here. sharing of spiky balls. Why, Everyone gets a rock. <laughs> why use a spiky ball when you've got a perfectly good, smooth, Beautiful. pointy rock? All right, thanks, Doc. Quiet-ish day today, but a busy one tomorrow. Yeah, well, we got a good walk in this afternoon, so pretty pleased with that. Yeah. So, as we said, it was a was a quiet day. They left us. They then sort of meandered along uh, the Hakwa River and up uh, eight mile track. Is that right? And then four mile. Well, yeah, then four mile. Ultimately, at the end there, um, and. You know, unbeknownst to us, we were then getting on the radio net reports of people really struggling up that last climb on that day, weren't we? Yeah, which I think we predicted. Um, so for the, the mid to backpack, um, it would have been six, eight, ten hours. And, and that's quite a long time to be out in the elements as well. So they would have picked up some water at Pikes where we were. And then there was another water station at eight mile um, and then four mile before the big climb. But I think in this situation, this particular event, we've done it a couple of years now, people always run a bit dry at that point. So they do go through more water probably than what they think they will. And yep. it's hot, it's exposed and the track leaves them pretty warm by the end. So there would have been a few people who were dehydrated starting the climb. Uh, and if you've been on your feet for 10 hours, you're going to feel pretty hot and dehydrated. Yeah. So by the top of the climb, we were getting some radio back that people were really struggling. Yeah, and it was probably... It seemed quite removed from us because we'd had a cruisy day. We went for our run. We're sitting in the river, cooling our heels. It was about as beautiful a place as you could possibly be. You know, the rest of the world's in lockdown and we were out and about. But there was obviously some people, you know, really struggling halfway through at that point, wasn't there? Yeah. And we were just thinking um, that if they were going to get through the rest of the day today, then recovery is really, really important if they were planning on backing up. So the med base, we're going to have to make a call. The clinicians up there are going to have to make a call on whether someone really was able to do day two, um, a joint decision with the athlete uh, yep. once they'd sort of got some fluid in. Um, I think if you are glycogen depleted and electrolyte depleted, you know, you can recover that. You can fuel up, hydrate up, um, make sure you correct those balances. But some of the muscular damage that happens when someone's been heat affected is a little bit more tricky to come back from. And so certainly rhabdomyolysis is, is a condition where you do actually break down a bit of muscle and it isn't really safe for you to continue the next day. Plus, you just feel absolutely terrible. So that would be the condition that people would pull out. Yeah. And I don't know that we had anyone that severely bad at that point. My read was that there were one or two who weren't going to Pretty go close. on. close, yeah. 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 So, and and that's where, you know, it's really important people check in with that aid station and have an honest conversation. I know every one of the um, members of the medical team, you know, they're, they're all endurance runners themselves mm -hmm. or right into it and they desperately want to see people finish but they want to help people make a really good decision when, mm. when it comes to that point. Yeah, and sometimes the decision is, well, you've just done a 53K day 
And that's, that's amazing awesome. for amazing. February 2021. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the, the mass majority had had a pretty good day. It was nice weather. Um, it was cool enough. They'd been a good downhill, solid uphill to finish, but they were probably tucking themselves into bed in good nick. But they'd been through the river a few times at that stage, and I think we mentioned there the whole – those that did the whole course were going to go through the Hauqua River 27 times in total, <laughs> which, you know, it, it sounds like – oh. No, it's just getting your feet wet and then running and then them drying out a bit and, you know – it, it's brutal that one. If you don't, if you're not adequately prepared, the blisters can be pretty significant. Yeah, uh, the first year we covered this race, I don't think I've seen feet in a worse condition. I no. would say it was uh, like foot rot or whatever. We, you call we it. did uh, on the on the second night the year beforehand. <laughs> we I think we did three hours solid of blister maintenance. We just had a, a line of four of us just uh, managing like popping blisters sealing them up, clean, cleaning them, sealing them, getting people ready, you know, tucking them into bed. It was pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, so um, the conditions were a bit drier this year, so there were less less blisters, but that is definitely something to think about. You need to have practiced with your shoes and socks. Yeah. Be very comfortable with your footwear. Um, and, yeah, have some blister management stuff in your pack always. You we'll, never know. Yeah, that's right. And we were mucking around at the end there about the river rocks, but it, it's completely true. I think the year before we learned that the vast majority of people who stopped with us actually stopped because of um, tightness in their knees um, or soreness in their knees due to tightness in at their, the front of their hips. Yeah, at the front of their hips. And we just didn't have enough spiky balls or we couldn't have bought enough spiky balls, but there were these beautiful <laughs> round river rocks and we had people rolling on the river rocks. Um, and, it, you know, again, it just says, you know, sometimes these things are important to pay attention to and you could chuck a little spiky ball in. You might feel – you could actually feel like your knee was re- really, really in bad shape and, and actually, you know, get, get yourself back to a pretty comfortable position. Yeah, and I think when people realise that actually you can do this yourself, so you can self-manage your own muscular pain, then you've given someone a tool that when they go out on the trail, you know, you can pull up against a tree and lean against a tree with that rock on your hip, you know. So they've actually got some self-management stuff that you can get on niggles early so that you don't run on them for then two, three, four kilometres and and cause a big issue. It does make a difference though, doesn't it? Yeah. It was a quiet day. We had a lovely little um, sit down in the river and uh, a lovely night in amongst the wild dogs and the deer and the samba deer that scared the <laughs> life out of us. But um, we were we were um, prepared for a bigger day and it certainly was. And um, we'll, we'll play the second clip, which you'll be able to see again on, on um, our social media pages and uh, on YouTube as well. But the, the second day was recorded in the car driving back on, on, you know, once we got through the four-wheel drive trails and we're driving back up the main road or the main dirt part of the road to um, Med Base at the end, kind of doing a bit of a debrief. And, and you'll notice the doc's voice a little shaky because it, it had been a really busy end today, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. All right, so um, we're just finishing day two, so Saturday, um, and we're in the car. It was um, driving up from Hauqua back to Buller Base, and I don't know if you can see out there, we've got views out to the bluff. Um, so everyone's through Hauqua, or they've been eliminated due to a cutoff, so it's 7.30 at night, and um, we're heading back. Now, we had a huge day, didn't we, Bill? Yeah, well, it started late and quiet because we were about 30-something k's into the 50k day 
So it was a relatively quiet start. Um, first runners came through pretty pretty well in pretty good nick, um, considering that a lot of those were the 100 uh, runners, so they were in their last 20Ks of their 100Ks. Um, but then it got pretty warm, didn't it, at around about yeah. midday? Oh, no, my, my note took, no, uh, took some notes and it, it's um, about 10am, um, they all started coming in thick and fast. Everyone's coming in... Um, a little bit emotional, a bit shaky, um, coming off the back of a really a busy, um, a hot stretch from 8 Mile to Pikes Flat where it was very exposed. Temperature was going up quickly and it was quite humid. Um, a lot of people ran out of water at 8 Mile, so we found that by the time they got to Pikes, they were a bit dry, um, like, like I said, a bit emotional. Um, and we found people felt hot, then they came into the tent, we'd get a set of vital signs on them, and then they got cold really, really quickly. Um, and we were finding that it was a bit of a pattern in terms of everyone looked heat affected when they came in. Uh, we tried to keep people warm while we were doing our stats. And hang on a minute. You just see on the video here, it's a pretty incredible view. Pretty incredible. That's amazing. Um, so yes, we had the most of the things that we managed were people heat affected, nauseated, feeling lightheaded and dizzy. Um, some of them were stable enough to go on if we could get some fluid into them at the um, aid station and others we needed to remove from the course or they came to the decision that they were going to withdraw. From Pikes up to Haukwa, it was a... a four-hour climb for some of them to get up to Haukwa, so it just wasn't safe to send some people up. Um, but a lot of them did. A lot of them got through. So it started off, they'd, they'd gone down, back down that epic four-mile hill that they'd come up. They'd run around, effectively around the Haukwa um, River Valley up to Pikes, back up to Pikes where we were, Um which you know, it, it's a beautiful part of the um, the run, but it effectively, it sort of faces um, the north the whole way. So you get the the sun as it's arcing across that whole morning, and, and it just I think the heat just creeps up on you, doesn't it, along that section? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and off the back of probably a little bit of depletion the day before, um, we're getting runners at sort of seventy eight no eighty k's of their run. So yeah, people. The, the front runners were looking good but tired. Um, a lot of them stopped very briefly um, and, you know, you're confident to, to see them manage and keep going. And then some of the mid-packers who, who might have run out of fluid, um, we, we had quite a run of them that came quite quickly. Yeah. And it was almost like um, we had a moment there, um, which we will talk about um, a little bit in the next section, where it was like a procession of people who were just on the verge, weren't they? They were really, you know, right on the edge of, of coping with it. And it was it was hard to tell whether they'd drunk enough, hadn't drunk enough, were just over overheated. It was it was mm. a bit about observing and watching and, and we'll hear right now a yeah. little bit about how we manage that. So the facility that we had was, was literally just a small tent with some um, mats laid out on the ground for people to take a break if they wanted to, if they needed to, or if we asked them to stop and wait for some observations. We had some diagnostic equipment. We had stuff for IV cannulation and fluid um, supplementation through a, through a drip if we needed to. 
and we had some medications which were important. Um, and of course, we have our ABCs of managing really significant illness. But we were very remote, so we had to make calls on people whether we thought that they were safe to continue or whether we would use um, take the time early to get someone out by road if they needed more assistance. Yeah, and we did utilise. We had the assistance of a four-wheel drive club that was able to act as a, effectively like the um, wagons, taking them back to Medbase. Um, a great, great bunch of humans that, that um, man those four-wheel drive um, stations that, that effectively acted as our... Careers, yeah, so good. incredible. Um, and you know, the vast majority of people are in good nick, but it's just you know you, you're seeing at that point one in every handful not looking that great, and either needing a little bit of a spell to reassess, and some needing quite a bit of help. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to um, get Steph Gaskell on the podcast. So Steph is an accredited dietitian who who works a lot with endurance athletes, and and some of our best endurance athletes in trail running. Um, she's got a, a great ability to plan someone's nutrition and, and see where they they might have fallen down in their planning previously. But some of the things that you always think about with someone with someone's nutrition plan is firstly the duration of the event that they're going, how much fuel, how much hydration and electrolytes they're going to need, um, what to do if you start having gastrointestinal upset because absorption of food and fluids is really important. So if you stop being able to absorb your fluid you're going to get into trouble quite quickly. So making sure that you've got contingencies and you've practised about some of your nutrition and fueling. So, yeah, some of the things that we saw were due to people, you know, actually not being able to keep any fluids down, which becomes a big problem when mm. you're remote. Yeah, you've got to get on top of it and it can be, can be tricky. All right, well, we'll um, dive in again and hear a little bit more about how we manage some of that. Things we managed, there were lots of blisters and lots of knee pain. Yeah, there was a bit of knee pain, a little bit of hip, but exactly the standard thing of coming down a big incline, you know, not using your glutes properly, and the patella tracking issues, and TFL and that sort of stuff, ITB tightness, but um, most of that was maybe a little bit of pain relief. Some were strapped, and some did some some rolling on the little foam roller that we bought, which was a win. Yeah, it was a win. Um, yeah, so I guess we had a really busy sort of four-hour block where we had a couple of sick people that took a lot of our attention. Then we had a lot of people with little things that all wanted attention, but we, we were pretty time poor, to be honest. We had our third medic down at Pikes Flat was um, Amy, and she is a, an ICU nurse, which was fantastic. So but we had a couple of times where we had sort of three runners lying down that she was doing sort of serial observations on. So she was getting heart rates, blood pressures and temperatures on, on our athletes and then we could make sure that they were staying warm enough um, and that they were getting fluid in. We did have to give a couple of medications, especially anti-emetics, to make sure that people were able to get oral, oral fluids in. And one guy we were pretty close to having to give IV fluids because his blood pressure was sitting around 90 systolic and wouldn't come up. Um, but after some um, anti-emetic, um, anti-vomiting medication that we could give into an injection into his bottom, um, he actually stabilised and could take fluids. So that was really, really good. We, I think we managed everything pretty conservatively but kept everyone safe. So very happy with that being so remote. He had the biggest vomit of anyone I've ever seen. He vomited 1.2 litres in one go. <laughs> 1.2 litres. And he didn't have that much fluid in his body that he could lose 1.2 litres of vomit very safely. 
Yeah, it was an epic vomit. I'll, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget your face. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was something else. It came out so quickly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we mentioned obviously we had the, the blisters and we had the hips and the knees and, and they were pretty straightforward to manage. But there was there was a window there of, you know, maybe five hours where um, – <laughs> Yeah, we had the volleys who were watching them coming in, just steadily walking them over, and and um, you know, uh, out of out of all the people, we're only talking about a handful who struggle. Um, so the vast majority of people, you know, crush it. Really, it's pretty amazing. It's it's pretty incredibly impressive to see how 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 well people manage. But the few who don't, you know, they really need help, and they need. Um, they need someone to look after them. It's amazing how quickly you go from being fierce to incredibly vulnerable in the wilderness. Yeah, and and people can get quite sick quite quickly. And the two things that are difficult to separate when you're when you're managing um, someone out in the wilderness is there's two sort of conditions that look really similar. So people can come in looking um, a bit out of it, spaced out, dizzy. Um, and if they become quickly unconscious and fall over, that, that can be a number of things. Firstly, you have to think about cardiac, but suddenly some, you also have to think about electrolyte imbalance. Some people can get a really uh, a low blood sodium if they've drunk too much water and they haven't done a lot of sweating, if they overdrink, and then some people can underdrink and get dehydrated. So there's a, it, it, it's really important to watch someone uh, firstly taking their vital signs, so, so heart rate, blood pressure, in lying and standing, um, temperature, all of the things that we would do normally if someone presented to an urgent care facility or an emergency department, doing all the normal things um, and then watching them and doing serial observations because the conditions can change quite a bit. Someone's condition changes a lot. And in this situation, like I said, we had people that came in really hot, very high heart rates, and then all of a sudden they got really cold and then they felt sick and then they started vomiting. So that yeah. was because they were shunting all of their blood you know, from the skin back inside and their skin got really, really cold. So these people hadn't drunk enough on the, on the last leg. Yeah. And, and we were busy and, and it, it was, um, it was actually, I remember taking a moment, just having a look and going, Jesus, this is pretty, it's pretty crazy. Like it, it looked almost like a bit of a mash setup, you yeah. know, a bit of a mash unit, but it was the tent and the radio yeah. system and but we, everyone we wanted kind of, everything all at once. Yeah. We, and we kind of worked out a pretty good system where Amy, who was incredibly experienced, she was taking like, um, the, um, statistics off the patients and I was vital trying signs. to, yeah, the vital signs, I was trying to record them and let you know, and kind of manage you a little bit. And, um, you were trying to actually deal with patients and I was trying to keep you moving and then keep the radio updated and, and, and what yeah, you were doing a good job at putting someone in front of me if you were worried about them. Cause I was sometimes, I had my head getting caught in, in one person's situation and trying to give some medication or and trying to document, making sure what we'd done and then relaying that back up to yeah. mid-base on the radio. And sometimes then there's another runner that's come in that's also unwell. So you do need that other person as the triage nurse would do in the front of the emergency department sort of work out that this person's sick, they're bumping up the queue, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, when you've got two very experienced medical professionals there, my job is to direct traffic and that that's kind of what it was. <laughs> and not just that, it was also the – the guys um, doing the transport out, doing the the transiting of, uh, you know, withdrawing athletes out. Yeah, trying to have a four-wheel drive on standby at all times was our, was our motto. Yeah. So, and it's a, it is a very good setup, I would say, and there, we'll post a video of the, of the loadout from the setup, but there's a lot there, but it, we got stretched really quickly. So it can, it, it's, it can get overwhelmed pretty quickly if, um, 
if uh, you know people don't look after themselves. So it is important that people you know manage themselves really well on their on their runs, notwithstanding the fact that there's there's really good services to support them at each station. And we all had we had the volleys come over from the aid station to give us some food and coffee at some stage, didn't we? That was really good because you couldn't get to eat. Thank goodness. All right, we'll roll into the last section because there was a there was a twist at the end of this one, and it was um, it was a fascinating finish to to what was an incredible weekend. And then the last thing uh, we had going on was um, we were afraid that someone had collapsed on the climb out of pikes. Um, couldn't move apparently after ingesting tw- uh, 10 salt tablets during the day so we're just a little bit um, uncertain about the clinical condition of the, the guy on the hill um, so we deployed a four-wheel drive straight away to try and get up this track which was quite technical um, and I think it's worth saying that this happened at exactly the same time as a, a lightning, uh, lightning alert yeah. Yeah, came through and we had lightning striking within two seconds of where we were. So it, yeah. was, it was a pretty sketchy situation. We had to get the competitors were held up for 45 minutes and they had to throw their poles away and, and you know, remain stable and still. Um, and at the same time, we had to deploy the dock up a very steep hill in the middle of a storm to go and make an assessment on uh, a yeah. person who was, you know, we had to assume was we, in a really bad We condition. didn't have enough information no. on, so yeah, yeah we no, took no, up no. with us a couple of kits including diagnostic equipment, um, a bag of fluids and um, cardiac resuscitation things, um, but we didn't have much time to plan and get going, so we literally threw it all in the car and headed up the hill, but in hindsight, um, yeah, it's tricky when you don't have enough information from um, the sources, but you often can't get it, so you just have to plan around having a group that goes up and assesses at the scene. So you went up the hill, and we'd run up that hill the day before. <laughs> so when we did our debrief yesterday, we were recovering from that. That hill. And it was a very steep hill. Yeah. I would prefer to run up and down it than be in that four-wheel drive, I tell you. So you, you <laughs> slid down backwards in the four-wheel drive at one point, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't feel particularly safe about that, but um, we put it in low range and, and we did get up quite safely. Uh, but needless anyway. to say, it was a, and it just kind of illustrates, I think, the point of these events, although there's an enormous amount of work that goes into making them as safe as possible, uh, and a lot of people do a lot of prep for them, um, it's still a very challenging event and in a very challenging environment and even with all of the support that is available, things can go wrong mm. and they happen to be in a, in a position, one of only probably two positions on the course that wasn't immediately easy for us to get our, our four-wheel drive into to, yeah. to make a recovery. So The Corn Hill logging track um, is a four-wheel drive track but it's been closed for a number of years to, to cars so to get up that track... Um, yeah, certainly it's it's closed for a reason. There's logs overhanging it and um, there's lots of loose gravel and very sticky clay, slippery surface. So um, that wasn't easy to get a car up. Um, but and, and in the storm, there wouldn't have been a way to get air traffic, air help from a helicopter either. So, um, but yeah, all's well, it ends well. Um, but I think, yeah, like you said, if you're signing up to do... Um, the uh, in events that are in the great outdoors just take really good heed of the emergency um, mandatory gear that you have to take because you can be you can need to be self-sufficient out on the hill. Um, and we bumped two or three people out wrapped in their own space blankets 
for warmth because they were shivering off the back of being hypothermic when they arrived. Yeah, actually that's right. We did use the space blankets from the packs for most people that were leaving, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, here we are. We've come out off the dirt road and on the main road up to Buller Summit and we're going to have a beer. <laughs> we will, but we've still got an hour left to finish the last runners, so yeah. we'll see. <laughs> So it it was a pretty massive um, last half of the half of the event really for us, wasn't it? It was. So we sort of pivoted straight from having our little ICU down at the tent to all the action up on the hill, um, quickly getting everything in a four-wheel drive and going. Yep. And I will say I wasn't responsible for the four-wheel drive that slid back down the hill, but <laughs> it was. Uh, I mean, having run up that hill, like it it was it was really borderline we could get anyone in there we just had to get someone up there because i think as you mentioned the report that we initially got was from another runner and this runner had been struggling themselves and um and and we weren't quite sure we just it didn't sound great it didn't sound necessarily um catastrophic at that point but you just don't know though we didn't know you have someone who can't move so can they not move because they're unconscious because they've had a cardiac event or can they not move because they're having a big cramp and they've got a sore leg you know there's a big difference but you know we're in a lightning storm so we had to Mm. send someone up to find out and that someone was us so yeah well it was you i stayed back and um and and bullied the troops back at back at the ranch which we'll talk about in a moment but um so you got up there, all was actually reasonably well when you got there? Yeah, so I found the, the guy who had, um, he'd had a lot of salt tablets, but I, I think I, his condition was actually fine when I got to him, So, which was a relief. We didn't have to do any CPR on the hill, which was very good. Um, we had two four-wheel drives at that stage, so we ended up, um, after we knew he was stable and he had some food and fluid to go in the car, he went with one of the volunteers yeah. up to med base and yeah. then he was observed properly at med base and from that point they can decide whether they want to get a, um, some road transport from an ambulance but from what we had to do our plan was to just get him off the hill to a safer location yeah. once we knew he was stable yeah and I, look i mean you and the and the guys that got up there in the truck it was actually amazing effort really given that it was pouring rain and it was a clay clay surface it was it was pretty incredible yeah i felt like it was a bit more than just we were going after one person because um, this was at the end of the race, so we had some sweep. Some of the sweeps that do these events are unreal. They are the best people, and they, they have a really good sense of who's at the back of the pack and who is or the back of the field and how they're travelling. So they often give us some good feedback about, yeah, we're going well, we're just taking our time here, or, you know, we're actually struggling a bit here. So they often give us some good feedback, and we can trust the sweeps at a lot of these races. Yeah, very experienced. And, and so as we were going up the hill, we were finding a couple of these back groups, and, and everyone had poles still. So one of the things that we were trying to do on our way up, even though we were trying to get there as quickly as possible, was make sure everyone was adhering to the lightning policy. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So a storm came through right at the same moment, and as I mentioned, it was sort of like crack, one, two, you know, bang. Um, so the the lightning was effectively on top of us, um, and uh, Medbase it's their responsibility to make a call on when the lightning protocol comes into play. I think it's it's come into play at a number of events that I've been to. It's it's the high country, you know, it's yeah. the Alpine National Park. It happens all the time. The Alpine weather system changes very quickly. So what happens in in lightning protocol? So 
the lightning protocol is designed to um, eliminate the chance of some accidents that have happened overseas in countries whereby people have been struck. Yep. And they're usually struck when they're on high places, ridge lines, um, you know, t- towers, radio communication towers. So our lightning And we have policy- seen that in, uh, in, I think, in Italy this year or within the last year and in China in events. Yeah, yeah. And it's absolutely the event's responsibility to make sure that they keep an eye on the weather and that if they need to deploy a lightning protocol, even if it seems like absolute overkill, you have to do it. Yep. So all so with the EMS group, we always have a, a debrief sort of before the event and everyone knows what the lightning protocol is, but sometimes people have missed the event and they're shocked by us announcing it at the time. But it is, everyone has to stop where they are. If you're on track, if you're at an aid station, you have to stop where you are. So that's it. You just have to seek shelter with the tents. Um, if you're out on trail, you, you're not allowed to have your poles on you. So you, you, you need to drop them by the side of the, the road or pass them to a car. So that's what we were doing. We were picking up people's poles in our four-wheel drive so that they didn't have these big carbon rods on them, which are conductors of electricity. Yep. Most important thing, though, is to get off any ridge lines. So if you're on, on the top of you know the Razorback, when the lightning storm comes down, you need to get off very quickly because yep. you'll be a target. So get off ridge lines, get off summits, get off high structures like ski lifts, cell phone towers, isolated trees, and you need to be out of the open and exposed areas. And when they say get rid of the poles, it's not just chuck them on the ground next to you. You need to get like 30 to 50 metres away from them. Mm. And the other thing that is recommended is to spread out. Um, and uh, I think whenever things are going wrong, people want to stick together, but actually it doesn't make sense if, if lightning did strike the ground, and even if it didn't strike you, but you were impacted and, um, you know, you, you lost consciousness for a moment or something like that, it's better that there are some people that aren't impacted that can then help others. So, mm. you know, I think it's always worth remembering, don't just chuck your poles next to you, distance yourself from them, obviously get low and uh, separate as much as you can. Yeah. <laughs> so we had lightning. Uh, we had to stop people. Then they're not happy. Like they're right at the back end of this thing. They're gonna get there. They're you know, and once again, it's always like cutoff is about to come because there are you know there are thresholds at each aid station. If you don't get there in in the allotted time period to that point, you get pulled out of the race automatically. And I actually think the race director extended it because of the lightning protocol and gave everyone an extra thirty minutes. I think so that so they weren't disadvantaged, but. You know, it it um it takes a lot of effort to convince them that they must stop and wait. Yeah, I think I wear two hats in this because as a, a medico person, you you absolutely need it to be safe. So we can't have people out there if if there's lightning around; it's too high a risk. But as a runner, also, I kind of understand that um it's a it's a trail race in the wild, and environmental factors take take place so it's not as predictable as a track athletics race you do need to be lucky with some of the elements and so you know if you want to make cut off you do need to be a bit of ahead of the time just in case something goes wrong yeah and um the final part there was just the discussion around the mandatory gear which is you know i think it's always an interesting one inevitably when um whenever we do gear checks at the start of events you know 95 percent of the people have got absolutely everything Five percent don't have their space blankets, like, and they they think, oh, that, that's fine, it's not a space blanket, and a couple won't have their whistles and and things like that. J- just talk a little bit. I mean, we mentioned there around that that the we use space blankets to we actually 
evacuated a handful of people using their own space blankets and others that we scrounged to help, you know, I guess keep them going. Uh, wouldn't be wouldn't be a big it wouldn't be overstating it that in some events we've you know having a space blanket has actually saved people from from really close Hypothermia. calls. Yeah, yeah. So each each event has a, a mandatory gear list, and it's usually based on experience of being in this environment. Um, even if you're planning on winning the race, you need to have all the mandatory gear. It really doesn't slow you down that much. It's very light. Yep. And if you were to, you know, sprain your ankle or break your leg accidentally, it could save your life. Um, and so the mandatory gear, the important things in the Australian bush is always a snake bandage or three, yep. <laughs> depending on how many you need. Um, space blankets are really important. They don't look like much. They look like a silver piece of foil, but when you open them out, they can be wrapped around you to keep you warm um, or someone that you're with to to keep them warm or um, we've actually used them to flag down helicopters before yeah. if we're really trying to be spotted in amongst the trees in the bush. Yeah, and I, I was actually talking to a, a group of guys that I um, paddle with around the gear that we take out when we go paddling on the bay here in Melbourne and, and I said, well, I always have a space blanket because I remember when we had one of the chop evacuations um, up in – New South Wales, the chopper pilot said, well, that's what they saw. Yeah. They didn't see any of the other stuff we were signalling, yep. but they saw the, a couple of space blankets flicking around in the wind. So Yeah, it's good feedback for us. Yeah. Um, so a whistle as well, um, because if you are somewhere off track and you just can blow your whistle, you can be heard at least. Um, you need to have adequate fluid and energy, so you know calories in terms of bars and energy, just for the race, but also just say you got stuck out for the night, you need to have enough to keep you going till the next morning. Um, so there'll always be an allocated amount of extra that you need to have with you. And you need to have the bladders that are capable of carrying water and you need to have them full. Yep. And I think people underestimate how important food fuel is for keeping you warm. You know, it's one of the main ways that you could keep warm through a night if you had to survive a night outdoors would be having some fuel yep. in your stomach that's actually being metabolised yeah. and keeping you warm. That's the first layer of the hypothermia wrap as you get taught in your wilderness first aid. Oh, there you <laughs> it go. is. Um, what else is there? You need to have the map that's loaded onto your phone yep. um, and that needs to be able to be accessed out of range as well, whichever software you're using. And you should have a, a spare charger system as well. Yeah, back, back up um, battery, yeah. Yeah, plus a little first aid kit that's got blister management things, Band-Aids, Fix-A-Mole, whatever you need to keep um, your hotspots covered yep. so that they don't turn into bigger ones. A um, uh, small amount of personal medication that you might need um, and anything that you normally need when you're out on trail as well. Yeah. Sunscreen, hat. Yep, all that stuff. But oh, yeah, jackets, waterproof pants. These yeah. kind of things save your life. Don't skimp on them. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. There's always, you know, 99 out of 100 people understand it and pack it and have it and then there's always a few who, you know, just think it's it's a bit casual and there's always awkward and difficult conversations and, you know, the good race directors just won't let you race with it. They just draw a line in the sand. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, it is. It's certainly from a, um, from a medic's point of view, it's really important. So that was the wrap of day two. We might take a quick break and come back with your thoughts. So, Doc, I think one of the things on reflection on watching that, you know, sort of five, six months later was, and, and hopefully people who listen to this will have a chance to have a look on, on YouTube and actually watch the two videos 
you can clearly see the difference in kind of emotion from first day to second day. Like first day was really cruisy, having a great time, amazing human beings, like incredible endeavor that all these people are doing and the people that are supporting them are brilliant and we're, we're loving it. And the second day we'd been through, we'd been through the ringer a little bit and, and we're a bit not shaken up by any means, but we were, you know, it was almost like adrenaline and we were sort of coming down off this massive adrenaline surge, I think. Yeah, definitely there was a difference between the two days. And I think that's actually reflective of all the events that I've covered is that you have very cruisy days and then very hectic days. Um, And often it's to do with the number of competitors or where the course goes or if the weather is hotter. Slight change of weather. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it was just slightly hotter that second day and people were just that, you know, it was just a, a bit of a tipping point, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, it can be really cold as well and, and people can have problems the other way. Yeah. Um, but each event is really different and each event organiser really needs to understand the course where they're going and we've got some great event directors in, in Australia. Um, yeah, but I think that's that's really crucial that you, you really understand what situation you're going to head out into and that you're adequately prepared. Yeah, amazing. Any final thoughts from you? No, I think this is going to be a really cool couple of episodes that we've got coming up. Um, our, the theme of the podcast has always been sports science, sports medicine and athlete management and no no place really shows it up more than if you're out on the trails in the wilderness. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And look, let's hope the uh, pandemic starts to play in our favour and we can get out there. We've got a few amazing events planned coming up. I think um, GSCR is, fingers crossed, still currently on the cards and then there's a stack of being moved into December. <laughs> every other event's going to be in December for this year, but, um, you oh, know, everyone will be very happy to get out there. Oh, I, you know, I'm, I've got the itchiest feet to get out and, and amongst it. Well, it's been great to get back into it with you, doc. Nice to see those videos again. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, very good. And, um, keep an eye out on the socials for the, for the new ones coming up. Um, as Next we've said, episode, Steph Gaskell, Steph Gaskell coming up.